Good morning. Hey, uh, if you're a guest with us, my name's Rob, one of the ministers here at New Hope, and I would really love to meet you. And so after the service, come catch me or anybody here, and we'd love to answer questions, help you get connected. Like Ben said, there's a starting point gathering next week. We'd love to have you join us for that as well. Um, So uh, one other thing, uh, on our app or website right now, the best way to fill out a Connect card is on the app or the website. And we really appreciate when you do that, and we want to emphasize that, because when you submit prayer requests, either through the website or on the Connect card, that immediately comes to all of our ministry staff uh, or elders as well. And so we can be praying for you. As soon as you submit those, you're being prayed for throughout the week. And so every week we gather, and we, uh, we gather together to pray over all these prayer requests as well. And so if you get a chance and you're going through something, we want you to know you're not going through it by yourself. And we'd love to come alongside and pray with you uh, that way. So I don't know if you've seen the 1993 movie Groundhog Day, anybody? Uh, right? It's a really great movie starring Bill Murray, and he plays a weatherman. And uh, in this movie, uh, which is just brilliantly done, it's like watching the book of Ecclesiastes, to be honest. Uh, but Bill Murray is a cynical, just self-absorbed, pompous, arrogant guy, Right? And uh, he gets this assignment every year as a weatherman to go to Puxatawney and report on Groundhog's Day, and he hates it. He doesn't enjoy it, doesn't like the assignment at all, but he has to go because it's his job. But this particular year, when he goes to report on it, he finds himself getting stuck in Groundhog's Day. So every day he wakes up, it's the same day over and over and over again. And as one person I heard talk about this said, uh, it's not hard for a narcissist to begin to pick up on the fact that you could use this to your advantage. (laughs) And that's what his character does. If I'm waking up every day and I got another chance to do this, you better believe it's going to be fun. And so the movie shows a lot of comedy. Shows him robbing a bank at one point. He goes and he robs a bank. It's pretty hilarious. He dies like four times uh, because he knows it's just going to start over the next day. He, at one scene, he's sitting at a diner eating everything we always want to order all at once. And you know you shouldn't order it. And he's eating it all at once. And they're like, what are you doing? He's like, nothing matters. Life is meaningless. And he just keeps eating it, right? He chases after his love interest in the movie. And you're, just, you're watching this. And the lesson that he's learning toward the end of the movie through this process is uh, the fact that there is purpose and meaning every day. It's not Groundhog's Day. You're not just going through this routine. Life can be an adventure that you're invited into. And I, I, I see that and I think to myself, that's kind of the message of the book of Acts. It's this explanation that as we're Christians and we're following Jesus, we've been given an invitation to allow him to be a part of the everyday stuff of our life, which kind of pulls us out of the rut or the routine, the Groundhog's Day feeling that life can sometimes give us. And if we're being honest, that's it. In Acts chapter 22, Paul is going to get up and he's going to address a crowd that's made up of one group of people. But in this, in this sermon that he preaches, he kind of levels the playing ground between two different groups of people. You've got the morally upright, the religious people, the devoted followers of God. And then you've got what the Bible refers to as the Gentiles. These people that are far from God can't seem to get it right. Paul's message levels the playing field between them in this brilliant uh, speech sermon that he gives to this crowd. It's, It's really well done. And what he's doing is he's addressing everybody's need for Jesus. So just that's where we're going today. But it, the, the thing is true that for their audience, it's the same for ours, right? We've got people that are, man, I am a follower of, of Jesus. I, I tried my best. I do all these. We're kind of upright and doing well. And then you got the people that are far from God. And this message is for everybody in between. And if we're honest, I think all of us can fall into that rut 
of Groundhog's Day, if you will, right? Every day wakes up, just kind of feels like it's the same thing over and over again. Think about it this way. If you're someone, let's just say you're not a follower of Jesus and what life can kind of become like. You go to school, you kind of learn a specialty, or you go to trade school and you learn a trade, and you kind of become well-versed in it, and you work really hard. And let's just say you save up a little bit of money, you do okay with your finances, and maybe you vacation well, and you, you uh, continue to save, you raise your kids right, they go off to school, things seem really well, you uh, saved up enough to retire, you retire, you go visit your grandkids, you travel around a little bit, and then you die. Um, Okay, and what about the day-to-day? Well, the day-to-day is you wake up in the morning and you, you know, you have your cup of coffee because, you know, it's a, it, caffeine is kind of like a dependent thing for most people to wake up and get going. So you get your coffee and, and you drink your coffee to wake up and you check your messages and you go to work and you do your job well and you relate to your coworkers. You come home from work and you're kind of tired, but there's things to do around the house. And so depending on time of year, you do the things around the house you got to do. And then you're really worn out. You just kind of want to relax. Maybe you guys have a little fire in the backyard in a fire pit come in the house and, and you, you eat dinner, you watch your favorite show, movie, your ball game, go to sleep and you wake up and you do it all over again, all right? It, today's about encouragement. Uh, and so <laughs> I just want to encourage you all day. That's why we're here. If you're a Christian, you would say, you know, let's throw in Bible reading and church attendance on Sunday, but it kind of feels very similar, except we read our Bible daily and we go to church on Sunday morning, but it kind of feels like every day I wake up and it's Groundhog's Day. I think we've misinterpreted a little bit the invitation of Jesus, And Paul's message kind of pulls us back out of that and reminds us of exactly what Jesus has invited his followers to do, what he has invited them into. And so Paul's going to address this crowd. But before we get to that crowd, um, we're going to need to uh, get some context. If you have your Bible, I want to encourage you to open it up to Acts chapter 21. If you don't have a physical Bible, uh, you're free to open it up, uh, the one that's in the seat back that's in front of you. Uh, that'll follow right along with us. And that's our gift to you. You can keep that. Uh, my father-in-law, when he was preaching, I've said this before, uh, growing, you know, in his early years of preaching, uh, when he would say, hey, go ahead and turn to this, he would hear pages flipping. <laughs> I watched the room light up. Uh, it's a little bit of a different audience here. But would love for you, if you need a Bible, grab the one that's in the seat back that's in front of you. We're going to pick up the context in chapter 21, verse uh, 33. Here's what Luke tells us about Paul's experience. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing and some another. Kind of sounds like a debate. Hmm. Uh, Too soon. Too soon. (laughs) Since the commander could not get at the truth, okay, uh, because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great that he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd had kept shouting, get rid of him. As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, can I say something to the crowd? Do you speak Greek? He replied, aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists into the wilderness some time ago? Like, whoa. (laughs) The story is like a game of telephone, right? Paul answered, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. After receiving this commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. And when they were all silent, he began to speak to them in Aramaic. So you got something pretty fascinating here in the context before we pick up in chapter 22. Paul arrives uh, in Jerusalem. And he's just going through his routine. He's in the temple worshiping. This is what happens in chapter 21, what we didn't read. And he's just worshiping in the temple when some people from Asia that were there noticed that it's Paul in the temple. And the context of that is, if you remember back in chapter 19 when he was in Ephesus, 
He began to preach the gospel, and it changed the entire culture to the point where they wanted to murder him. And the Christians thought it's probably best that you get out of town. Well, he gets out of town, he ends up in Jerusalem, and all of a sudden there's some people from Ephesus that are in the temple. They've been following him. They create an uproar. They begin to say, this guy's teaching things that aren't true. We need to get rid of him. And so then the, the crowd gets so out of hand, they begin to beat him. They begin to physically assault him to the point that the Romans, who were violent in nature as is, take notice and come in to stop the beating. So just think about how intense the beating Paul was enduring was. I mean, he's just getting completely beat up by this crowd physically. Within moments of losing his life, when the Roman soldiers come over and say, whoa, 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 what is going on around here? Their motivation was probably to control any kind of a mob. They don't like mobs. And if you kept the peace, you could do whatever you wanted in Rome. So these soldiers, they stop the crowd and say, hey, what's going on? And everybody's shouting different things and screaming things he needs. I need to get at the truth. So he takes him and he puts him in the barracks and he wants to talk to him. Okay, what's actually going on here? Now think, Paul's physically beaten. The text tells us he was physically beaten so bad that he needed help up the steps. The crowd wanted him dead because of what he taught. Okay, so now he gets into the barracks and this commander wants to hear from him. And Paul speaks to him and the text tells us that he speaks to him in Greek. This is where it gets really fascinating. He says something to him that really gets the commander's attention. Now, Paul spoke to him in a certain language with a certain accent that got his attention. Here's what's true of that world back then. If you spoke different languages, the accent that you used signified whether or not you were worthy to be heard. So think about that. If you used a certain accent, you came from a certain part of town, we could listen to you. You're educated. If not, you didn't. So the same thing's true in many parts of the world today. So Paul, looking at this Roman commander, speaks to him in a language and with an accent that gets his attention, and now he wants to talk to him. So much so, he's curious enough to say, whoa, 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 you speak Greek? Aren't you the terrorist that ran off into the woods? Like, whoa, that, that's not me. And he begins to tell him, I'm actually from a pretty leading city. I'm not from a small town. And in those days, that was important. So he says, this is actually where I'm from. I'm from a major city, metropolitan area. And say, okay, that wins him over again. And then as he talks to him, the commander realizes this is a pretty educated guy. And he says, I'd like to talk to the crowd. I would like to be able to speak to the crowd. So he turns after given permission and he motions to the crowd. Well, what does that mean that he motions? He would have used what's called an orator's gesture. He would have gestured with his hand in a way that everyone in the crowd would have noticed. Whoa, whoa, this guy knows what he's doing. He can speak to the crowds. He's somebody we want to listen to. He understands. It'd be similar in our day to having media savvy, someone who knew how to be on camera to get your attention enough. And so he, he does this motion. Everyone begins to say, okay, what is this from? And then it's fascinating because it says he doesn't speak to them in Greek. He doesn't speak to them in Hebrew, which these are Jewish people. You would have thought speak in Hebrew. Instead, he speaks in Aramaic. And the question is why? Why would you speak in Aramaic? Why would you choose to speak in that? Well, since the Babylonian exile, the Jewish people, they were cap held captive. When they were sent free, they dispersed, Right? Uh, it's the diaspora they dispersed all over the place. And when they did, they began to pick up different languages. And so Hebrew was not a language that was spoken in every Jewish home at the time. They were picking up different languages in different parts of the world. It'd be similar to when the U.S. was like colonized. You have different French and Dutch and all kinds of European people coming over. And what happens is they're colonizing in this area, but they're from different places, speak different languages. And so the ministers preaching the gospel in order to relate to one another in the churches, they couldn't speak French and they couldn't speak any of these other languages. They chose to speak Latin because Latin was a language that all these ministers would have been college educated. And in those days, if you were educated in college, you spoke Latin. And so the neutralizer was a language that was nobody's native language. Well, that's Aramaic in those days. 
Aramaic would have been the language that nobody really spoke, but everybody knew. Everybody knew Aramaic, but it wasn't the language you spoke in your home. It wasn't the language you spoke connecting to one another. And so for Paul to switch from speaking Greek to this Roman soldier, to turn to the crowd and immediately switch to speaking Aramaic is pretty impressive. Because now everybody who hears Paul's voice, everybody who hears him, they speak it, but they don't speak it every day. So it's kind of like if you knew the language, but you weren't the master of the language, which meant you had to pay attention. And so now everybody's not just hearing him talk. Everybody's like, I know this language, and you, but you kind of lean in a little more because you're like, I know it enough. If I pay attention, I'll get what he's saying. And so he brilliantly just levels everybody in a moment. I, Howard Marshall's a, a, a New Testament scholar, and he, he wrote these words. He said this about what Paul's doing here. He says, what Paul does in a space of about five seconds is absolutely incredible. Paul went from being a passive party, just hanging out in the temple, seized by two different groups of people, the Ephesians, right, we talked about, and then the Romans. One of them wanted to murder him and were stopped from killing him. The other one's about to punish him again. And so both are hostile against him, so hostile that the soldiers needed to carry him away from the mob of the crowd. And he goes from that situation to being completely in control of the situation. Within minutes, he very smartly used his language skills to get into control of the moment. He basically calms everybody down and now has an opportunity to speak. Now think about the level-headedness Paul would have had in this moment. Beaten. You got to almost put yourself in the situation. You're beaten, so physically damaged, in such physical pain. You're carried, and in the moment, you have the presence of mind to speak the language and the accent needed to get the commander on your side. Turn and speak the language and accent and tone of voice necessary to level the entire crowd and get everybody to listen to you. I mean, you just think about that. It's a pretty incredible moment. Pretty incredible scene, what he does. And he, he's so level-headed, and this is what gets me too, because he desires not just to address them, but he wants to share the good news of Jesus with the people that just tried to murder him. So you think about what the good news of Jesus means. Among many other things, it means you're going to be saved from your sins and taken to heaven, right? If you're Paul and the human side of you flares up, you're thinking, I'll just be quiet, <laughs> And if you kill me, I'm going to heaven. And you're not. Yeah, I'm not even going to tell you guys about it. Good luck figuring that one out. Right? You'd, you'd want to, like, but no. What is it in the moment that not only gives him level-headedness to live out the mission Jesus gave him, but it gave him the heart and compassion to love the people that just tried to murder him? Blows my mind. I think it's because the Apostle Paul realized in that moment they're living out his story. And he's actually going to explain that in just a moment. Paul knew that no matter how religiously upright these people were, they can't earn their way into heaven. And he knew no matter how far from God they were, they were never disqualified or too far away from the grace of God that's found in Jesus. He just wanted them to hear that. Hear this truth. Wrestle with this truth. I mean, that's the heart of everybody, right? Every Christian should have the heart that says, I'm not in this to convert you, though that's awesome if you become a Christian. I love you. And I want you to hear this truth, no matter how bad it's been between us. I want you to hear the good news of Jesus. And so Paul, staying with his strategic approach, he jumps in in verse 1 of chapter 22. Look at what he says. Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. When they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. Now you know why. They, whoa, we can understand this guy. Paul said to them, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. 
I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison. As the high priest and all the council can themselves testify, I even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus, and I was on my way there to bring the people as prisoners back to Jerusalem to be punished. So immediately he relates to his crowd. Right away, he's going to relate to them. He's saying, hey, you guys are pretty religious people, devoted followers of God. You're Jewish people. Well, guess what? I'm the ultimate Jewish person raised in this city, raised with this teaching. And then he points out certain things. He's like, I'm from a big city. The second thing he says is I studied under Gamaliel. Here's, there's a lot you can say to that, but here's just a simple way of understanding it. It would be similar to him saying, hey, I graduated the very top of my class at Harvard. That's what that would be like. Gamaliel was the top rabbi to study under him. Be top of your class was a big deal. Or it would be saying, hey, I studied and I came out top, very top of my class at MIT. What it means is, you better listen to me. I'm an expert in the field that we're talking about. Everything you're mad at me about, I know more about it than you do. So he's like, I understand. It's not only that, but the way that you just beat me, I beat other people. In fact, I finished the job that you couldn't finish just now. You didn't kill me. I killed people. And then I was going to go get letters and make sure more of them were brought back as prisoners. I'm telling you, if anyone's devoted to the kind of lifestyle that you're living right now, it was me. I'm the expert in the life that you're living. That's what he's telling them. And so immediately now, not only speaking Aramaic, but relating to the way they live their life, he's drawn in. Now he throws the curveball, the ultimate curveball. But it's important for us to note, when you're sharing your testimony, when you're sharing your experience with Jesus, be human. In that moment, Paul's just being real. He's being human. He's like, look, this is the life I lived. I get why you think the way you do, and I get why you're living the way you do. I was right there with you. Now the curveball, verse 6. Here's what he says. About noon, on his way to Damascus, as I came near, suddenly a bright light fell from heaven and flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul. And I want you to notice as we read through this, pick up on the fact that he does some things pretty intentionally to appeal to a Jewish listener. First of all, when Jesus speaks to him, he uses his Jewish name. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So now they're even clued in even more if they're in the crowd listening. Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. He replied, my companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. So after dialoguing, he says, what do I do, Lord? What should I do? I asked. Jesus says, get up, go into Damascus. There you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. Here's what's fascinating. We've read this. You're like, uh, we've, I know we've preached this before. Chapter nine, Luke tells us from his account what happened to Paul. This is Paul's telling us from his own account. So this is from my perspective what happened. This is what he says. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law. So notice this. A devout observer of the law and a highly regarded Jew. Why does he say that about Ananias? Understand, just like you guys, he was a devout follower of the law and, and a Jewish person with great influence. Again, keeping the crowd with him. Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at the very moment, I was able to see him. Then he said, the God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one. He doesn't say Jesus. The righteous one. That was, an, again, his audience would have been the righteous one. That's the Messiah. Okay, so you, whoa. Okay, now they're really in on this. They're, they're really following and tracking with him. And to hear the words from his mouth, you will be his witness to all people of what you have seen and heard. And now what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized and wash your sins away, calling on his name. It says, when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, fell into a trance and saw the Lord speaking to me. He said, quick, he said, leave Jerusalem immediately because the people there will not accept your testimony about me. 
So he says, he dialogues back and forth with the Lord, and the Lord says, hey, you're going to go to the Gentiles. Now, picture somebody in this audience. Here's what they're hearing. They would have been completely thrown off by what Paul just said. By the way, he bookended his little speech or sermon here, because he starts out saying, I'm just as religiously de devoted as you are. I'm just as into the cleansing and being clean and being holy and making sure that I'm doing everything that God's word tells me to do. I am a very religiously upright person. I'm tracking with you guys. And then he bookends it in verse 16, and he says, now, get up, be back baptized, wash away your sins, and, and then follow Jesus. So wash away your sins, call upon his, calling upon his name. So hold on, Paul. What you're telling us is you were good with God, but not really good with God. You see, the Jews would have understood baptism. It, it's not just a New Testament thing. See, in the, in the Old Testament, if somebody was a Gentile, meaning they were not a Jewish person, and they wanted to become a Jewish person, a follower of the, the God of the Jews, they would have to get baptized. And so they'd come, and they would get ceremonially fully cleaned. Because the Jews viewed the Gentiles as unholy, dirty dogs. So sure, you can come and believe, but you've got to get clean first. You've got to clean. See, they understood that. And so what Paul's doing here is really unbelievable. What he's saying is, even though I was as religiously devout as you, I couldn't earn my way. And he's telling the crowd, every one of you, no matter how devoted to the way, the, the way of thinking that you are, are in need of grace. You're just as in need of grace as the dirty, defiled Gentiles. See, he's laying out the gospel message to them. Doesn't matter whether you've got it all right and you've lived your life perfectly and you're devoted completely to God or you've messed it up and you've continually made mistakes of your life, whether you're caught in the groundhog day of waking up every day with the pressure of continuing to do the right thing and continuing to follow the law, or you're stuck in that groundhog day of waking up thinking, I'll never get this thing right. He said, no matter what, everybody's in need of this. Everybody needs their sins washed away. He presents the full gospel message to him. I love Tim Keller's definition of the gospel. Here's what he says. This is what Paul's saying to this crowd. Tim Keller says it this way. He said, the gospel is this, that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Let me read that again. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared to believe. Meaning I've messed up more than I can even imagine. And yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared to hope. He said the Christian's been humbled all the way to the dirt and yet also lifted all the way to heaven. All at the same time. And this is a theme in Paul's teaching in the New Testament. He continually will teach this, whether you have an inferiority complex, you beat yourself up all the time, you think I'm never good enough, I'm never going to get this right, or you have a superiority complex and you just think I got this good, I'm doing fine, I've got my life together. No matter where you land on that spectrum, he says you're both wrong because you've made everything about you. Whether it's always about you because you think you're superior or you're always beating up on yourself, you've made it all about you. And he says it's not, it's all about Jesus. You can't earn your way and you're never too far away. You can't earn your way into heaven, and you're never too far away from God's grace. He says this is for everybody. He kind of lays it out there for them to wrestle with. And now they're forced to face this truth, and they have to respond. What Paul's telling them is this. I came face to face with this idea. I'm not allowed to make God in my own image. Paul's like, I couldn't pick and choose anymore the parts of God I wanted to actually submit my life to. I didn't get to create God the way that I wanted God to be created. I came face to face with truth, and I had a decision to make. And he lays it out there for them. And you have a decision to make too. What are you waiting for? And then look at how they respond. Look at verse 23. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Yeah, he relates to us. Yeah, we get, whoa, 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 whoa. Something's wrong with us. We have to change something. 
I have to come face to face with truth. I can't keep doing what I've been doing. I can't keep living the life I want to keep living. What? No. So then they reply. They raise their voices and they shouted, rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. Rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. And that's not the response you want when you put your heart and soul into a sermon. I can tell you that. <laughs> rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. But for some reason, it doesn't phase Paul. Why is it? Why didn't it phase him? See, Paul's not into presenting the gospel for fanfare. And he's not into presenting the gospel to feel better about himself. He presented them the gospel. He lived by a principle. We'll call that principle the pebble in the shoe principle. Track with me. You ever had a pebble in your shoe? Super annoying, right? Super annoying. But Paul understood this. When he presents truth, rarely does anybody change their mind in the middle of a debate. Or maybe it applies to us today. I don't know. Nobody changes their heart right in the middle of, of the debate. When you're, when, you're rest, when you're putting sandpaper to their soul, it hurts. But if you put a pebble in their shoe, then eventually the only way to relieve yourself of the frustration of the pebble in your shoe is to do what? You got to stop and address the pebble in the shoe. You ever been hiking or walking and you got this pebble in your shoe and it's like, ah, oh, eventually I got to stop. And Paul knew this. If I give them the pebble in their shoe, then a few days from now, a few weeks from now, a few months from now, eventually that pebble is going to get to them to the point where they have to stop their life and really evaluate whether or not this is true. And if it's true, what does it mean? And I think we'd be good to begin living by that principle. I may not change your mind in this moment, but I'm going to, in a loving way, give you some truth that'll become a pebble in your shoe and eventually you're going to have to stop and address the truth. Eventually, you're going to have to stop and address what this means for your life. And Paul knew that. I'm not going to change your minds here. That's fine. But I'm going to put a pebble in your shoe, and then I'm going to be on my way. Let me put a pebble in your shoe this morning. Have any of you uh, maybe seen these? This is a a -a (laughs) Build-A-Bear. A -a Build-A-Bear, okay? When each of our kids were born, my wife and I, we would go to Build-A-Bear, and we would put a bear together. And uh, we did this starting out with our, young, our oldest, Caleb. So this is actually Caleb's bear. And you go in to build a bear, and it was just me and Sarah that time, and we built him a bear before he was born to give to him when he was born that he could keep with him, right? We put the wrong uniform on him, but we lived in Indy, so it's all good. <laughs> Oof. Rid the earth of him. <laughs> so... We go in to build a bear, and everything is about piecing it together. And so you build, you take the outside of the bear without any stuffing in it. You pick the one that you want. And then you go and you put the stuffing in the bear, and it's what kind of stuffing do you want and how much of it do you want. And so then you put the amount that you want in there. And then you have a little box that you can record a message to whoever you're giving the bear to. And so at the first time, it was me and Sarah. We recorded a message to Caleb, and we put it in there, and it's it's almost 13 years old, so it doesn't work anymore. Uh, But you would press this little button here, and you could hear the voice speak. right? And then you get to pick an outfit for the outside, and you have the bear exactly how you want it. And man, it's cute, right? So with Abby, our second, Caleb came with us to build Abby's bear. And then with Luke, our third, Caleb and Abby came with us to build Luke's. And then we all went together to get Noah's bear. And and you'd give him the bear and it was awesome because it's exactly how you want it to be. And it's really cute when it's for kids. It's not so cute when this is your faith. When we come to God and we say, when it comes to my Christianity, God, I want it to look like that. And I I only want these parts in there. I'm going to pick and choose the different parts of faith to submit to and to live for, oh, when it comes to Jesus, I only want him to say what I want him to say. I don't want him to speak into certain things. He can just kind of say the things that make me. And when my faith is all built up and it looks the way I want, it's, man, it's nice and warm and cuddly and cozy and I like it. And Christianity is so great. 
Paul's message in Acts 22 is build a bear Christianity is no Christianity at all. You don't come to God on your terms. You don't create God in your image. You don't get to come and say, I, want, I love Jesus, really want him, but man, Jesus, if I press the button, he starts talking about money. I'm like, uh-uh, let's break the box. I, we don't need Jesus talking about money. You want to speak into my marriage, God? I didn't put that in there. I didn't put that in there. You want to speak to the way that I'm living my life and whether or not I'm treating my kids right or I'm making wise decisions and not tanking my life? I didn't put that in there. I put in there, make me feel good every week. That's what I put in there, and that's what you should do. Squeeze, soft, nice, Jesus. And Paul's saying, no, it doesn't work that way. Paul says, when you come to Jesus, it's on his terms, not yours. And a decision that is laid before all of us, no matter what we're doing and where we're at in life, is this. Will you or will you not submit to his lordship? That's what he's doing in Acts 22. This is the truth. What will you do? We're going to take communion, and if you're a Christian, you're in Christ. I want this to be, let's get out of the Groundhog's Day approach to communion, where it's just over and over again. And in these next few moments, I want you to really go back to when you made that decision. I want you to track over what you think your life has looked like in submission to Jesus. And maybe during communion, this time where we remember the sacrifice of Jesus, we might need to do a little bit of repenting for Build-A-Bear Christianity. All right? And those of you that are not in Christ, you've not made a decision, you've not been baptized into Christ, and you've not been immersed and, and put under the water, dying to your old self and raised up to new life, washing your sins away, calling upon his name. Well, maybe today's your day. Either way, the decision is yours. And I echo the words of Ananias. What are you waiting for? Get up. Wash your sins away, calling upon his name. And if that's you today, during communion, I'm going to stand in the very back of the room if you just want to make your way to the back, no eyes, you need to talk about what it means to submit yourself to Jesus and use these next few moments to do that. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for truth, even when it's hard. God, I love that because we're your children, when we're in Christ, it's, it's not a fear of your wrath. It's, it's a loving discipline. You're continuing to shape and to mold us like a good father. And so, God, these next few moments of communion, those that are in Christ, may we spend some time with our father just remembering the joy that overswept our souls when we realized we didn't have to earn our way and we weren't disqualified because of the past that we've lived. And God, for those that have not made that decision, I pray that the Holy Spirit's been working all around them and in these next few moments, they would, with courage, get up and realize they don't need to earn their way and they are not disqualified from your grace. And we offer you these next few moments in the name of Jesus and all God's people said.